A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. This is A Mucky Business and I am Tim Farron. Welcome to the show where we take a look at politics from a Christian perspective. Now, you might think that Christians should steer well clear of politics, tainted as it is by compromise and sin. And of course, politics is tainted, but so is everything else in this fallen world. So I think we should seek to understand politics, to participate and pray in an informed way, especially for those Christians who serve in the mucky business of politics. Each week, we speak to a guest. Usually that will be a Christian involved in politics. And this week, we'll be joined by Lord Leslie Griffiths, a Labour peer and a Methodist minister. Amongst other things, we'll be asking him why he is that rare creature, a church leader who is both in the House of Lords and a member of a political party. A former president of the Methodist Conference, as well as superintendent of the famous Wesley's Chapel in London, we'll hear about his early life and how he came to a career in church ministry and then how he ended up in politics. We'll also hear about his passion for the country of Haiti. But first, as someone who was an MP during the MP's expenses scandal of 2009, the last few weeks have felt eerily and depressingly familiar. The integrity of those who serve in Parliament is once again leading the news and not for the best of reasons. On Saturday, I had a lovely day out in North Shropshire, rolling countryside, picturesque villages and, of course, a parliamentary by-election before Christmas. What better reason to pay a visit? The by-election is happening because Owen Patterson, the former Conservative MP for the area, resigned recently, and so there is now a contest to elect a new MP. The by-election will take place on December the 16th, so as someone once said about something else, it'll all be over by Christmas. What won't be over by Christmas, though, is the ongoing concern that people have about whether their MPs should have second jobs. Owen Patterson resigned after the Commissioner for Standards had judged him to have broken the rules over lobbying. MPs are not banned from taking second jobs, but they are banned from taking paid lobbying jobs. In other words, you can't, for example, be paid by a company and then go and lobby government to do business with that company. Owen Patterson did that, and that's why the commissioner found against him. The bigger controversy was that the government tried to change the rules after the fact so that Mr Patterson wouldn't face punishment. But this has opened up a wider debate about whether MPs should take second jobs at all. Recently, it was UK Parliament Week, which gave me the opportunity to go into a range of schools in my patch. Many of the young people asked me what a typical week looked like for an MP. The short answer is that I spend half my week in Westminster, voting and speaking in Parliament and lobbying ministers on behalf of my constituents. And I then spend the other half of my week in my constituency, meeting residents, doing surgeries, engaging in local campaigns and generally being immersed in the community. So MPs have a role which is part legislator and part local advocate. Some MPs choose to do the first bit and not so much of the second. In those cases, an MP would, I guess, have time to do a second job. But if you do both halves of the job, you really won't have the time at all. Of course, if you're a minister or indeed a party leader, you do end up in effect doing two jobs. And I can tell you from personal experience, if you attempt to work hard at both of them, it can seriously take its toll. Here we are talking about MPs taking paid work outside of their parliamentary duties. In these cases, I'd make an educated guess that those MPs who are able to find the time to do a second job have constituencies that we might call safe. In other words, their constituency habitually gives their party a large majority at elections. 
The safer an MP feels, the more likely they might be tempted to increase their income by doing something else as well. Maybe that's something we should seek to put right. So how should Christians think about this? Well, first, let's make sure that we form a view based on facts. Every financial gain that an MP gets outside of their parliamentary salary has to be entered into the register of MPs' interests. So you can very easily find out how your MP approaches this issue. Second, let's be slow to jump to conclusions and let's pray for wisdom and discernment so that we can judge between what is right and wrong. It's not necessarily morally wrong for MPs to have second jobs, even if on balance we think that they shouldn't. We've spoken to many politicians on this podcast, all of them seeking to live for Jesus in their very different ways. For those Christians who are MPs, the reality is that our job can help to open doors and make things happen. And it's one of the most rewarding parts of the job. But surely it should always be done on behalf of constituents, not corporations paying for the privilege. Of course, as Owen Patterson found out, there are already strict rules and standards that govern that kind of thing. When it comes to second jobs that do not currently break the rules, what then? Ecclesiastes 9 verse 10 tells us, whatever our hand finds to do, do with all your might. I'm not sure that I will be doing that if I'm off looking for other things to turn my hand to. God has put us in Parliament, and there we have the opportunity to love our neighbour and to serve God. That, then, is the thing we should be doing with all our might. In Titus 1, we read that Christians, especially those in leadership position, need to be above reproach. When MPs make choices about how they spend their time, it is vital, then, that we remember that we're being watched, that our witness will be affected, and that we will most certainly be setting an example, whether it's a good or a bad example, is up to us. A mucky business with Tim Farron. So to our guest this week, Lord Leslie Griffiths, a Labour peer and a former president of the Methodist Church. Leslie, you must be one of the most qualified guests for a podcast which looks at faith and politics. You're both a church leader and a politician. Thank you so much for being with us. Delighted to be with you, Tim. Well, before we do delve into politics, would you take us back to, to growing up back in South Wales? How and when did you come to faith? Well, it's curious. I, I can't think of coming to faith without thinking of coming to politics, to be quite honest. Um, I grew up in a, in a home that wasn't church going, where there was no faith uh, and where there was oppressive poverty um, and survival was the name of the game. Um, but my mother, who worked six days a week in a factory, uh, put me into the Sunday school when I was a toddler, I mean, about eight or nine years of age, uh, to get her out there as a child-minding exercise. And that put me in the context of people of faith, not that I had any, um, until later on in my life. Well, when I passed the 11-plus exam, uh, I overheard a conversation not intended for my ears, where these working-class women pledged themselves to put a certain amount of money away per week for the Les Fund, because they knew that my mother couldn't cope with uh, the grammar school, uniform, equipment, and stuff like that. And out of loyalty to them, and also the conviction that these people believed something which I didn't have a clue about, which translated what they believed into action. And so that was a very important moment for me at several points. So I stayed in the Sunday school, stayed in the context of faith, still didn't have faith until I went to university. I was 19 or so before I accepted that I had faith. Um, so that's how it came. It's a very 
hard and and but also the burning sense of injustice um, my mother was a very good woman she had very poor health in the end the factory she worked in broke her body and we were assessed for national assistance and i remember the man coming and of course the national assistance bill was put on the statute book by our mp jim griffiths mp who lived in burryport i mean just think mm -hmm. of that my mother was proud of that but we were assessed by a man carrying a briefcase who effectively told my mother that she was really kind of lazy and not trying hard enough. And if she tried harder, she could go back to work. Uh, we knew, my brother and I, we were nine and 10 at the time, that that wasn't the case. And we jumped on that man. We hit him, beat him, pushed him out of the house. My mother was afraid that um, we'd be taken into care and all that kind of stuff. But I couldn't accept the fact that we lived in a world where a good woman like my mother was given so little opportunity to, um, to, to, to discover who she was and to live with dignity. So the political and the faith thing sort of went side by side. I wanted a better world. Yeah. I didn't realize in those early years that my faith would give me a framework within which I could set ideals I could work for in trying to get this better world into existence. So it was that kind of a process, really. And I wonder, I mean, going back to the women behind the Les Fund, uh, mm. I wonder whether you ask yourself the question um, where you would be if it weren't for those who invested in you at that early age, both in terms of your, you know, the, the political career that you, you now have and your, um, your ministry in the church. I'm utterly certain that those women who taught me in Sunday school uh, and who encouraged me later to be a teacher in the Sunday school mm. and who familiarized the teacher and teaching of Jesus for me um, gave me a, a way into all of that, which became the capital I drew upon when I converted to Christianity and to accept mm. faith. Uh, they are key to understanding everything about me. And that was the my brother failed the 11 plus examination, didn't go to the grammar school, left the church as quick as ever he could for a very different kind of life. Um, and so I've got actually verifiable evidence that <laughs> that's what turned the thing for me. Yes. And obviously your um, experiences as a, as, a, as a child and your mother who worked so hard, but who suffered so much, um, whether you would have described it as that at the time, that clearly politicised you as well, made you angry about injustice and uh, desired to, to, to see a better world. So you were a local preacher in your 20s before training for the ministry. Was politics ever a career ambition for you uh, or was it always a life in the church? Uh, I wrote to my member of parliament when I was 17 and I asked Jim Griffiths, MP, what I had to do to be a politician. And he wrote back and said to me, I wish I'd kept this letter. I haven't, I'm afraid. Uh, he wrote back and said, you don't become a politician until you've lived a life. And that's, that's good advice. Mm -hmm. So I went out and lived a life. And a very varied and interesting life it became. Um, he, of course, uh, my MP, worked underground. Um, and then he became a trade unionist and led the South Wales Miners' Federation. Then he went to college in, in London, and then he became an MP at the age of, uh, I don't know, sort of 40 or something like that. So, so he, was, he set an example, and from his example, he said to me, if you want to do it, you've got to have something you can draw upon to say when you become a politician. And so you, you went into the church. Um, 
I think in, in our current age, I, I observe that church leaders can have a tough balancing act in you know, the need to speak out against injustice, um, speak truth to power, as we say, but also not to be seen to be too partisan. How did you manage that balance during your years well, in ministry? Yeah, no, it's curious you should say that, Tim, because um, I was a card-carrying member of the Labour Party uh, forever and ever before I became a Christian. You know, let's mm. realise that. Um, and and most of the churches in Britain that I served in uh, had local MPs who were conservative. Hmm. And certainly in all the congregations I preached to, um, there would have been Tories, people who voted that way. I never had one single complaint um, in all my ministry that I was using the pulpit for political ends. Um, I would I would I would highlight instances that were current in the news about something that needed to be better, whichever government was uh, running the show, and, and, and address that um, as something in the newspapers, something we were all feeling, we had thoughts about, and, and so it was current. Um, but never ever did I um, do an ideological job from the pulpit. I really do feel that that was sacrosanct. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, was, was it a balancing out? I never found it to be difficult at all. I think that I've discovered it through all the years of my ministry that everybody from every political persuasion want decency and dignity. And you can appeal to that in them, whatever the case you're arguing may be, because people are have a, a residuum of goodness in them, um, even some of the wickedest people I've ever met. And you have to find that and work with that. That's been the challenge of my interpersonal um, sort of pastoral life from the start. So, Leslie, um, you did eventually enter politics, so to speak, in a uh, in, in the sense of being a parliamentarian. Tell me how your appointment to the House of Lords came about. I haven't got a clue. <laughs> it it is simply interesting. I mean, I, I um, Hillary Armstrong, who was a chief. Uh, whip in the Labour government of Tony Blair um, is a Methodist and she used to come to Wesley's Chapel where I was the minister and one Sunday when I wasn't there um, I was preaching elsewhere uh, she turned up I was told she'd been there I was sorry I'd missed her she rang in the afternoon and said I was in chapel this morning I said I'm sorry I missed you are you there now can I come for a cup of tea so she came for a cup of tea and then said to me, Tony wants you in the Lords. It was like a thunderclap from a blue sky. Mm -hmm. I had no idea that anybody was uh, working for it. And I certainly hadn't thought I wanted to do it myself. But it's been marvellous. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. We're speaking with Lord Leslie Griffiths. He's a member of the House of Lords and a former president of the Methodist Conference. Leslie, you may be the only church leader who doesn't sit in the House of Lords as an impartial cross-party peer. What are the benefits and the drawbacks for that? Well, the benefits are clear. I, I said at the beginning, I mean, I was offered the opportunity to sit on the cross benches. I said, no, I'm a Labour Party man. I'm going to sit where, where I've always wanted to sit. Um, so I said, I can't go into a political arena and not allow myself to do the politics. Mm -hmm. And anyway, politics is too important to leave to politicians. So I certainly enjoyed fellowship and companionship of like-minded people. Um, and and um, I have felt I, I wanted, I mean, 
you know, uh, for the first seven, I went in in 2004, until 2017, I sat on the labor benches, but only spoke on things that uh, were pertinent to me, like education or civil society or um, some uh, case of an injustice that I wanted to argue, um, but just an instance at a time. In 2017, when I retired, I said to my party leader, um, I'm now retired. Um, I can now do a bit of political work if you want me to. And so she put me straight on the front bench, straight into um, holding two portfolios, DCMS and Wales. Um, and, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Now, the drawbacks, the drawbacks are mm. that you can be classified as being simply a party hack. <laughs> I can't tell you the um, the uh, the friendships I've made across the house in every single corner of the house, uh, the bishops bench, uh, the conservatives, uh, the crossbenchers, the Lib Dems. Um, I found some fantastic um, friendships that have been made uh, of a bipartisan nature. Um, but I can see the danger. I can see the danger of of of, of simply becoming a mouthpiece for um, a set of opinions and decisions that you've had no organic relationship to. And once you become a factotum, mm -hmm. instead of a human being arguing for a better world. So I, I see the thing theologically, you see, mm. in that sort of way. And you're talking of burning passions for you, the country of Haiti is uh, one which you um, clearly hold dear in your heart and have deep concern for the plight of that country. T tell me how your uh, your love and commitment for the country of Haiti came about? Well, it was very interesting. I was at Cambridge, of all places, and um, because I spoke French, I was sent to Haiti. We expressed an interest in going overseas. I had to get the atlas to find out where it was and, um, and a few books to understand its rather noble history as the first black republic in the world. Um, so it came about as every other thing in my life has come about by uh, by my responding to an expressed need that came to me from somewhere else. I, I've never had an ambition. I've just had opportunities and taken them. Um, but Haiti is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. Um, when I went out there, because I spoke French, I had 48 communities to look after when nobody spoke French. I was totally and utterly dependent on peasant people, illiterate, in places that were inaccessible. My wife stayed down in the town where we lived, and I went off on a horse on a Friday and came back on a Monday. No mobile phones, no anything, uh, no way of communicating, not even smoke signals. Um, and so, so um, uh, I was totally dependent on the goodwill and the generosity and the humanity of some of the most, well, what did Franz Fanon call them? The wretched of the earth. Mm. Uh, they were marvelous to me. They taught me their language. They taught me their culture, their sense of humor. Wow. Now, obviously today, um, I mean, Haiti's obviously struggled for many, many years, but it's a country in the headlines for the wrong reasons with its president assassinated in the summer uh, with a power vacuum, recent earthquakes and great suffering there. Um, what's gone wrong in Haiti and what do you think needs to happen to put it right? Well, I wish I could uh, give a simple answer to the last mm. part of your question. Uh, it is in a, a worse mess than I've ever known it to be in. Uh, it's it's uh, neglected, sidelined, um, impoverished by its neighbours, basically. So um, they, need, uh, they need to regularise their constitutional governance. They need to build 
locally run and accountable institutions. Half of their government was destroyed in the earthquake of 10 years ago when a quarter of a million people died and um, half of their government departments were flattened with all the records and everything that went with it. Yeah. Um, so they need, uh, they need to be rebuilt from the ground up and they need um, a, a much more imaginative response from the outside committee that is prepared to, give, to invest money in helping Haitians to build a society that they run mm. and that they can take the major decisions in. Well, Leslie, as I said to you when we were talking uh, just yesterday, I, I'm often infected in a good way by the passions of our guests, and I feel very much so um, with regard to Haiti and what you have uh, led me to understand about that country. I know there'll be other people listening to this podcast who will feel the same way. How can we be praying for Haiti? We, well, we must be praying for Haiti um, right on the margins of our consciousness. Uh, we must remind ourselves that Black Lives Matter and the lives of the first, the people in the first Black Republic in the world matter. Um, and uh, I think that we should be praying hard for wisdom, compassion, generosity on the part of the outside community and for the resilience that Haitians have shown again and again and again to be manifest now in this time of their greatest need. And anything that we can do to help, for example, um, I just got photographs this very week um, of a new vocational school that I've been helping to support for years now, and then it actually opened its doors on Monday. Wow. Um, and they're preparing people for the skill with the skills that are actually needed in Haiti now. So much more of that. Um, and uh, so our prayers and our actions must somehow be united. Um, God wants a world that um, is built on, on, on values that are centered on human flourishing. Mm. And at the moment, we are so far from that. So we, we must pray for an alignment between what's happening in the world and what it is in the mind of God to want for that world. Leslie, such a joy to hear from you and to spend time with you. We will be praying for Haiti. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Tim. Each week, we answer a question from you, the listener, about how Christianity and politics can work together. Maybe you're thinking through a particular issue, or you're not sure why people disagree on a certain policy. If you've got a question, I'd love it if you wrote it in in an email to farron at Premier. .org.uk. That's it from Tayport in Fife. Hello, Tim. Thanks for the show. Some of your guests, a small number, have been on the podcast speaking about their faith, but then in Parliament or on campaign trail have behaved and do behave in ways that appear distinctly unchristian. How should we react when we see what appears to be double standards among our Christian MPs? Well, Mark, I think it's a good question and a fair one. I think for me to answer that, I can only really talk about myself. You know, there, there'll be plenty of times where either publicly or privately, uh, as a Christian who's a member of parliament, where I've let God down. And I think one thing we need to remember is that Christians shouldn't hold Christian MPs and put them on a pedestal. That's how the world treats people, builds people up and then is disappointed by them and knocks them down. Remember, Jesus is only interested in saving sinners. And so we should not be surprised when those politicians who are Christians turn out to be sinners too and will do things, say things sometimes 
that we feel really uncomfortable with. So how do we relate to Christians uh, in politics when we find that we disagree with them? And maybe not just on a policy issue, but on a real deep issue such as what you've touched upon. So how about this? We should, as Christians, relate to Christian MPs not like any other lobby group would relate to a member of parliament. Rebuking somebody who is a brother or sister in Christ in love is a right and loving thing to do. Not saying something is not a loving uh, thing to do, but how we do it is all important. And if you're a lobbyist from, or a, a campaigner from a charity or a, a, an organisation that really is angry with a member of parliament and you might write an email to them, which is lacking in grace, well, I don't think that would reflect very well on that organisation. And for us as Christians, we should remember that when we relate to members of parliament, especially if they are Christians, even if we're being critical, we must do it from a point of view um, that is loving and biblical itself remembering that we ourselves are fallen, that we ourselves need uh, to be uh, forgiven um, and being kind and compassionate to one another, uh, uh, remembering to love one another just as God in Christ has loved us. If you have a question for Tim, email farron at premier.org.uk. We're coming to the end of our time together for this podcast, so let's end in prayer. Uh, loving Heavenly Father, we really want to thank you for Lord Leslie Griffiths and for his love for you and his service. Uh, we want to share his passion for the country of Haiti and especially the people of Haiti. Um, we think of their need, their financial need. Um, we think of the economic troubles there. We think of the ongoing aftermath of recent earthquakes that have cost the lives of tens of thousands of people and, and have so impoverished that country further. We pray for richer countries including ours to step up and and help and be generous uh, we pray for wisdom for the leaders of haiti we pray for the power vacuum to be filled in a way which brings peace and stability and justice in that country um, we pray for the church uh, for those who believe in you lord jesus in haiti that they would be emboldened um, that they would persevere in their faith in you and that they would live out their faith um, amongst their neighbors uh, pointing the way uh, to the one source of real genuine hope, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we want to pray for members of parliament um, as we go through this time where uh, the finger is pointed at many and where questions of integrity are, are raised. We pray for those who follow you, Jesus, that you would give us wisdom, um, that we will be strong and powerful witnesses in how we live our lives publicly and privately, um, that that would bring glory to your name. And I pray for Christians around the country, that all of us would have a, a sense of wisdom as to how we should relate to politicians, whether they're Christians or not, uh, always bearing witness to the gospel um, and also making sure we treat people with kindness. And that we ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, don't forget, you can find this show on all podcast providers. So do subscribe and comment and like it so that more people can find it. Well, next week, we'll be speaking to Baroness Caroline Cox, a member of the House of Lords and a fierce human rights campaigner. Thank you so much for listening. Mm -hmm.